Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, welcome to the Immigration Advocates Network interview with Emily Good, the Refugee and Immigrant Program Director at the Advocates for Human Rights. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Today, Emily will talk about a recent decision by the Board of Immigration Appeals, Matter of LS, and how it might help some of our clients who have applied for political asylum and suffered past persecution. Emily is an expert in political asylum cases. She supervises the Advocates for Human Rights Pro Bono Legal Services Program and also represents clients in asylum cases. Emily, why don't we go ahead and start with the name of the case and the citation. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, the case is Matter of L-S, and the citation is 25I and, that's an ampersand, N, decision, which is abbreviated DEC, 705, and it's from the BIA in 2012. If you're looking for this on the immigration court website in their virtual law library. You may also want to look for it as Interim Decision 3742. Thank you. Now, can you briefly describe the facts and the procedural posture of the case? Yes, and this case has had quite the procedural history, so I'm going to start with that. Um, There's been two um, immigration judge decisions in this case. There's been two BIA decisions, um, actually three decisions now from the Board of Immigration Appeals, and it's been at the Eighth Circuit twice. And the first immigration judge decision was in September of 2004. The BIA affirmed the IJ's finding that there was no past persecution and that the country conditions for the client had changed in 2006. The Eighth Circuit in 2008, um, in a case, let me give you the site for it. Um, Shola, S-H-O-L-L-A, v. Gonzalez, um, and that's 492 F3rd 946, that's the Eighth Circuit, 2007, issued um, a decision saying there is past persecution and sent it back to the immigration judge, who then said that the Department of Homeland Security had showed that the client didn't have any fear of future persecution case went back to the Board of Immigration Appeals, who agreed with the judge. The Eighth Circuit then, in 2010, in an unpublished decision, um, said that the Board of Immigration Appeals didn't really address the humanitarian asylum factors, and so sent it back to the Board of Immigration Appeals, who then made the decision that we have before us today, matter of LS. That's a lengthy procedural history on this case. So let me give you a little bit of information about the client's factual background. Thank you. So this individual is an Albanian citizen um, who has a history of persecution that goes across about three decades. Um, His claim was based on political opinion. He was interned in a communist-era work camp in the early 80s, subjected to hard labor, really austere conditions, and was monitored by security personnel and considered to be a dissident at that time. In 1990, he joined a Democratic Party um, as a result of his Democratic activities, received threats and warnings from the secret police. Uh, This client wasn't the only member of his family who was involved with the Democratic movement. His brothers were involved as well. In 1997, 
Um, he was beaten on three different occasions. Um, two of those were by police officers and a civil, uh, civilian police employee. And then he lost his job in a sort of politically motivated firing following elections. In addition to harm to the client, um, his brother's home was bombed, another brother's store was bombed, and then in 2000, men shot at his house with machine guns and his son was hit in the leg and wounded. So we have a really lengthy history of persecution. And as a result of all of that suffering, the client um, continues to have fear, panic attacks, suffer from depression, sleep problems, and nightmares. And this was all documented in the record, including a list of all of the different psychotropic medications that he's taking to cope with these um, effects of his persecution. And then the last fact that's kind of that's very relevant in this case is that in 2005, the Democratic Party that he'd been involved with won the prime minister's office in Albania and also took over a majority of the parliamentary seats. So after all of that back and forth between the board, the Eighth Circuit, and the judge, what was the holding in the case? So what Matter of LS articulates for us is a legal standard and analysis that someone should be going through when granting asylum based on these humanitarian grounds. And Matter of LS makes clear there's two possible bases for a grant based on humanitarian grounds, one of which has been fleshed out much better in previous case law, and I'll talk about that in a little more detail in a moment. Um, but Matter of LS really defines what one of the grounds, which refers to other serious harm. It defines what other serious harm means and what an analysis of a claim that falls under this other serious harm humanitarian ground should be looking at in order to be successful. So let me just give a little background on how um, how this case even got to the point where we were looking at a humanitarian ground. Um, cases that are in this procedural situation are situations where a client has established past persecution. And as we know, when someone establishes past persecution, there's a presumption of future fear of persecution although the government attorney can rebut that presumption by showing either a change in country conditions, which was the case here, um, or showing that internal relocation is a possibility. If the government successfully does that, again, as they did in matter of LS, then there's an additional regulatory avenue through which a client can still be granted asylum, and that's where we get to this humanitarian asylum. And you mentioned that there are two paths to humanitarian asylum. Can you address those two paths, please? Yes. And let me start off by giving folks who are listening the citation to where you'll find this um, in the regulations. It is 8 CFR, and that's Code of Federal Regulations, 1208.13, parenthetical small b, parenthetical 1, parenthetical, I-I-I, those are all lowercase, and then A, capital A, or capital B are the two grounds. And the first one, capital A, is known as compelling reasons. And this results um, out of the severity of the past persecution. There's been a fairly old, relative to a lot of our asylum law, 
case called Matter of Chen, that's C-H-E-N 20 I and N decision 16, um, that talks about where the past persecution is truly atrocious. The person who suffered this type of persecution shouldn't be expected to repatriate to their home country. They really never stop being a refugee because it's so severe. And this path to humanitarian asylum has been the most common. It's been where there's been the most um, jurisprudence and the vast majority of cases where people have been granted humanitarian asylum have fallen under that prong. The second prong, though, the path that we're talking about today is capital letter B. And this is the section that talks about um, there being a reasonable possibility that the applicant may suffer other serious harm if they're removed to their home country. And this is what's interpreted in the case here in Matter of LS. And in this case, the BIA says that other serious harm might be completely unrelated to the past harm that the person has suffered, and also that this future harm doesn't require any nexus to one of the five protected grounds of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. And so it's really an important explanation of what it means to establish a reasonable possibility of other serious harm. And let's talk a little bit about the standard of proof by which you need to show that serious harm and how it is different than standard of proof for the other prong or for other aspects of an asylum case. Well, first of all, as um, the regulation itself says, we're looking at a reasonable possibility. So it's not absolute certainty. Um, I will say that while this decision provides a lot of good explanation, we don't have a exact explanation of what a reasonable possibility means, um, but that's kind of the preliminary standard. And then the burden is on the applicant, as with so many things in the asylum process. It's on the individual seeking asylum to show that there is a reasonable possibility that they will suffer this other serious harm. It's important to note that this is still a discretionary determination that the person applying for asylum needs to demonstrate that they deserve a favorable exercise of discretion from the adjudicator of the case. And it's also forward-looking. We're looking at what other serious harm will the person suffer in the future back in their country. And that's really where we see kind of a difference from the other path to humanitarian asylum, which is really focusing only on the severity of the past persecution and the atrociousness of that past persecution, sort of compelling reasons that tie to the past persecution. Under this prong, we're looking at reasonable possibilities in the future of other serious harm occurring to this individual. I want to talk in a minute about what kind of evidence would help to establish that but let's touch on what are some of the examples that the board gives on serious harm. Well, one of the things the board points out is that um, these can be problems and situations that will affect large segments of people in the country, which is unusual in an asylum context. They talk about civil strife. They talk about extreme economic deprivation. And they talk about mental or emotional harm and physical injury. 
Some of the specific examples they pull out include the unavailability of necessary medical care, um, the mental anguish for a mother who may be facing a choice of either leaving her child in the United States or being separated from that child or taking that child back to a country where they will certainly face female genital mutilation. Um, in addition, the crushing level of poverty and instability in Somalia, as well as the dangers in particular that women face, are noted. And then the other example they gave was a Mexican individual who had AIDS, who faced unemployment, unavailability of medication, and other social stigma such that they would really be isolated. Those are some of the examples that they pulled out of other circuit case law and just from their own sort of brainstorm, I guess. Mm. So this gives us some ideas of whom this case will help. And who else are you, uh, when you look at your clients and people who are applying, who else do you think this case might help? Well, I think it's most beneficial for people who've really seen a substantial change in country conditions since either their claim was filed or maybe who had persecution happen to them quite a while ago and then have come to the United States. And I guess that's probably true for both prongs of humanitarian asylum. In this case, um, children um, or people who are really young, when the persecution happened to them, are likely to benefit from this particular ruling. And additionally, um, because it is forward-looking, there's factors that come into play that you can consider that normally aren't in play in an asylum case. I'll give you an example of a case we had at the Advocates for a man from Liberia. And Liberia, for folks who may not be aware, went through a really grinding and terrible civil war and conflict that stretched into 2003. And this gentleman had been um, seen his, one of his children killed in front of him. He'd witnessed a lot of other atrocities. He'd been chased and beaten by rebels loyal to Charles Taylor and had been associated with a number of NGOs and so was targeted both for his political beliefs and his imputed political opinions. But while he was here in the United States, Charles Taylor was forcibly ousted from Liberia. The government completely changed in Liberia and was widely viewed to have stabilized and so his asylum claim became much more perilous because even though there was an agreement that he had suffered past persecution, the um, country conditions really had changed to such an extent that he couldn't go back. Additionally, the past persecution that he'd suffered, while horrific, um, didn't necessarily meet that sort of atrocious standard that we see in um, the first path to humanitarian asylum. However, um, unfortunately, this gentleman also had been experiencing kidney failure. He's been on dialysis three days a week for about four years now. And that was actually the factor that allowed the immigration judge to grant him asylum in the United States was because we were able to get documentation from the Ministry of Health in Liberia saying we don't have kidney dialysis. And from his physicians here, it was really clear that without dialysis, this man will die. And so that um, medical condition, which normally we wouldn't be able to raise in an asylum case, was really tremendously beneficial. Hmm. I can see how in a case like that, a practitioner might be tempted to go straight for that section of the law that seems most applicable for his or her client. 
but how should practitioners proceed through their own analysis of a client's case and how to present it when this is an option for them? Right, and that's really important because um, a lot of times there's people with really sympathetic personal situations, and it's important to remember that they still have to meet the definition for asylum. And so you still, in order to even reach this assessment on humanitarian asylum, you have to be able to establish and prove past persecution. And so that's really the first place to start, is to make sure that you have documented um, through testimony and through evidence that this person has suffered past persecution. And then it's important to take a really critical eye to the client's case and consider the fact, again, that the government can rebut that presumption of future persecution if there's been a change in country conditions or if internal relocation is a possibility. And so if you are working with a client from a country like Liberia or anywhere else where there's been substantial changes in the country since your client's persecution occurred, it's important to assume that the government is going to raise that issue. And at that point, you should be looking at first how you can rebut that finding, um, how you can show that the change in country conditions isn't really viable. But at the same time, then you're looking at this possibility of humanitarian asylum. Um, what is the severity of the person's past persecution? Um, and then what are these other serious harms that they might encounter if they go back? Do your research on country conditions um, and provide the documentation and evidence to support that argument. Hmm. So it's an argument in the alternative. You're not necessarily going to concede that the country conditions have changed, but you will also present evidence that supports this claim for humanitarian asylum. Exactly. You want to, I think, first really try to not be in a, in a situation of relying on humanitarian asylum, um, but assume that you could end up there if the government prevails. Okay. And what kind of evidence might you submit? What did you submit for your Liberian client, for example, or what was submitted in the case matter of LS for the Albanian man? Well, one thing that's really important um, in cases, matter of LS had some of these medical factors, as did our case for our Liberian client. And so um, medical documentation is really important and valuable. Many um, asylum clients are torture survivors. Uh, or are dealing with other physical manifestations that may be a direct result of what's happened to them or may just, as with our client with kidney failure, have happened to them since they've been in the U.S. And so you want to get letters from doctors or from mental health experts, psychologists, people who can talk about your client's condition, and then also try to get that documentation of what the situation is in the country. Um, there is The case law is a little mixed, on this front, I mean, they show that if you can't get the level of treatment that you want, that isn't necessarily a problem. But if there's no treatment available, that is a problem. And so looking at um, maybe World Health Organization reports or documentation about the condition of health treatment and health access in the country. And in our case, we happen to have a contact with the Ministry of Health in Liberia, which worked out really well for us. You may or may not be able to do that, but if you can get the country, um, you know, the sort of ruling institution on health issues to say, yeah, we can't, 
deal with this. This isn't something we have the infrastructure for that's helpful. Um, in terms of, though, a lot of what they talk about in Matter of LS is what are the general country conditions? Is there civil strife? Is there economic deprivation? And I think that's where, first of all, read the State Department Human Rights Report really closely. In case after case, we see the government and immigration judges really deferring to what's in that report. And so get familiar with it. If there's anything in there that supports your claim that it would be really dangerous for your client to return, highlight that first and foremost. And then also um, other documentation about the conditions in the country. Um, in matter of LS, there were a number other, of other reports submitted about ongoing political targeting that may have been happening outside of the context of the government, and any other reports that are available. Additionally, I think um, if you are working with a client from a country where temporary protective status may have been granted by the U.S. to other people, using that evidence of TPS. Um, TPS says that for whatever reason, we don't think this country can handle the return of its nationals. And that may be a compelling argument in terms of forward-looking that, you know, this country is um, in the wake of maybe a major um, environmental disaster or something else that makes them unable to support their own citizens. And so that can also be helpful. Hmm. Emily, is there anything that you want to add to this or any resources on your website that you'd like to flag for listeners? Well, first of all, I just want to drive home to people that, Matter of LS is a really helpful case. It provides a lot of clarity on this issue, but this um, provision in terms of other serious harm has been in the regulation since 2001. So this isn't um, a brand new opportunity. It's been there. It's just that it's better fleshed out, and that will really help provide guidance to the fact finders. And it may be worthwhile if you have a case that's on appeal right now that potentially could benefit from this to make sure that you um, send notice to wherever that case is pending on appeal to say, look, there's um, there's more guidance out here, particularly if it's at a circuit court, it may be worth seeking a remand back to the board or to the immigration judge in the case um, based on this new guidance that has been issued by the board. I would also encourage any pro bono attorney who's working on a case where you think that this could be an issue based on kind of that analysis of the case. If you do have a supervising agency, to check in with them and talk this through and to always go back to the Immigration Court Practice Manual when you're looking for guidance about submitting evidence, what you need to prove. Um, the statutes and the regulations are great resources on this front. Um, and then also at our website, the advocatesforhumanrights.org, we have a general asylum manual that does talk a little bit about humanitarian asylum. And then also the references that are out on Ian and ProBono.net, Asylum, there's great resources there. And I would just really encourage people to make sure that you're taking advantage of all of those resources. They can really help you prepare your case. And especially when you're working outside an area, um, in an area that's outside your normal area of practice, it can be very helpful to look at things, um, advisories that have been drafted by experts. Well, thank you so much, Emily Good, and thank you also to the Advocates for Human Rights for helping us to create this podcast today. 
My name is Pat Malone, and I am staff attorney at the Immigration Advocates Network. If you're not already a member of Immigration Advocates Network, I encourage you to do so, to become a member, so that you can access many of our wonderful resources, uh, including those that the Advocates for Human Rights provide for us on our website, which is a clearinghouse of uh, wonderful resources from across the country and from experts like Emily who help us all become better practitioners. Thank you, Emily. Thank you.